I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. And some of you have been wondering, are we going to spend the rest of the year in John 1? Uh, actually, we'll finish it next week. That'll be the sixth message, I think, or fifth through uh, John 1. But we're going to cover John 2 in just two weeks, two messages. So that'll give you some hope that we won't be in John the rest of my life. But it's worth it. Okay, I just want you to understand that the first chapter of John is very, if you don't know this already, very theological. Sometimes that word theology scares us, uh, partly because of something like our church app. It's so easy, right? We just expect everything in life to be easy. And sometimes you know, the gold isn't on the surface, and that's what theology really teaches us. Um, a bunch of years ago, 43 or so, 44, I met the woman who's now my wife, and I was um, immediately just, you know, it's infatuated, too hard a word, too important. I liked her. She was great. And sometimes people have asked us, how in the world do you guys stay with the same person for 40 plus years? And the, the key is, is that we, get, we continue to get to know each other in deeper and better ways. Uh, the love that we had at first was based on kind of the things you know about each other first. And yet that grew as our understanding of each other grew. And I, there's, a, there's a picture there of how we come to appreciate and adore and love and long to be with Jesus. The more we know about him, the more the vistas unfold as to how great it is to be in Christ, as Paul will say, to be a follower of Christ, as Jesus would say. And so, in many ways, our delight in Christ is a byproduct of our diligence to get to know him. And that often means going beyond kind of just the, the surface understanding of Jesus is, is God and he's my shepherd and he died on the cross for my sins, rose again victorious, that means I can have life as well, I'm forgiven and I'm part of the church. And that's really what John, the author, is doing in John chapter 1. Whether you know it or not, you've just been through a short course on deep theology. And it's going to continue tonight, okay? As we hear part two of John the Baptist's testimony. You remember in the past I told you that what John the author is doing is he is He's putting a lot of people on the stand, so to speak, to witness, to testify to what they know, what they've come to see and believe and experience and now confess about who Jesus is. And last week we looked at part one of John's testimony. And if you remember, in verses 15 and then 19 through 28, he testified primarily about himself because the religious leaders of Jerusalem had sent a group of people to him Remember, he was across the Jordan, he was east of the Jordan River, and he was baptizing. He was way out in the desert. And yet, hundreds, maybe thousands of people were flocking to him. The gospel writers say all, all Jerusalem and all Judea were going out. Certainly, it's hyperbole, but he was a big deal, right? Uh, if he were a Broadway play, it kept getting lengthened, and more people were going out to see what he had to say. And it was creating kind of a competitive friction with the leaders in Jerusalem. So they said, we've got to find out about this guy. So they send a group out to him, and they ask him, who are you? Are you the Messiah? He says, no. 
Uh, are you the prophet? He says, no. Well, then who are you? What do you say about yourself? And his answer was quite telling. He said, I'm just a voice. You didn't even give a name. He said, it's not that I have a position. I'm just the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Well, what we find out today in the second part of his testimony in verse 29 is now he takes his witness public and he witnesses about Jesus. And here's the, here's the cliff notes of what we're going to find as we look through verse 29 through 34. Well, let me read it for you first. The next day he, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So we're going to look at three things in this text. Number one, the declaration that John makes. Here he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then we're going to ask him, well, how can you say that, John? How do you know? And then we see his explanation that's given to us. And then finally we see his confession in the very last verse here in verse 34. I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So here's the cliff notes of this text. You guys know what cliff notes are? Some of the older generation. Do they still have cliff notes? Oh, okay, good. It's what you read when you forgot to read or didn't have time to read what the prof told you to read and you still want to know what it was you were supposed to read. Here's the cliff notes. He says, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He ranks above me. He was before me. He's preexistent. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing to reveal him to Israel, that he is the Messiah. And I knew this because the one who sent me to baptize told me that at some point, someone would come, and as I baptized them, the Spirit of God would visibly appear and land on him, and here's the startling point, would remain on him. And that was going to be the sign that this is the one who will come and baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're not confused at all, then you really haven't heard what I said. There's so many things in this text that kind of set off red flags. What does it mean that he takes away the sin of the world? What is the connection between John's baptizing with water and Jesus baptizing with the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? And what does it mean that the Spirit of God came down and remained on Jesus? So right away, man, we're, we're into theology tonight, so hold on. So first of all, we see his proclamation. Now we understand that John, by the time he says what he says in verse 29, he'd already baptized Jesus, right? He'd already seen the Spirit descending as a dove and remaining on him. Now he publicly declares Jesus' identity. And he does it in an interesting way. He says he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There he is. 
Now, for the first time in this chapter, John the author tells us that all the other phrases that he's used to describe this one, the Word, the one who made everything, the light of life, the Word made flesh, the Son from the Father, the one who ranks above John the Baptist, the only God, as we saw in verse 18, he finally tells us who he is. Verse 29, the next day he saw who? Jesus. There he is. And he sees him coming and he declares that he is the Lamb of God. Now, where does that come from? Well, it's the first in a long list of titles that are going to be applied to Jesus. Here he's the Lamb of God in verses 34 and 39. He's the Son of God. Uh, next week, we'll see that uh, Nathaniel and others call him Rabbi. Verse 41, he's declared to be the Christ, that is, the Messiah. In verse 45, Philip will say, he is the one of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Verse 45, he's understood in a human way as Jesus of Nazareth. He's the king of Israel in verse 49. He's the son of man, verse 51. I counted them. There's 15 different designations of Jesus in John 1. Why would John do that? Because these are all things that various constituencies in Israel at that time thought of as messianic titles, and he uses all of them. And he says these all apply to Jesus. There's no doubt who the hero of John's gospel is. Even though we've talked a lot about John the Baptist, really everything focuses on Jesus Christ. And here John the Baptist, who we would understand to be the last Old Testament prophet, right? he speaks probably in terms of Isaiah 53, when he says, Lamb of God. We're not sure exactly what was in John's mind when he said, there's the Lamb of God. But if we hark back to Isaiah 53, in verse 12, it says, he was oppressed, or excuse me, in verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, he did not open his mouth. And like a sheep that is silent, he did not open his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, put him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many. So Isaiah 53 has a picture of a sacrificial lamb upon whom, uh, in Isaiah 53, 6, all of our transgressions were laid. It's also possible that John the Baptist is using not only that demonstration, description in Isaiah 53, but also the well-known idea of the Passover lamb. You remember that, when God rescued Israel from Egypt. He said, look, take a lamb and put its blood on the doorposts and on the mantle, and as the avenging angel comes through Egypt, I will pass over, because the blood was demonstrating that God was, was covering their sins. Here he sees Jesus as not only the lamb of Isaiah 53, but of the Passover lamb. And then there's one more. The whole idea of the scapegoat, that on the Day of Atonement we've talked about that the high priest would lay his hands on a goat and, and symbolically transfer all of the sins of the nation onto that goat and then send him away. And all of those come together in Jesus Christ, 
And it fulfills what the angel told to Matthew in, in chapter 1, verse 21. In talking to Joseph, remember, don't, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Okay? That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she'll bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. So all throughout the Old Testament... The people of Israel were looking for the one who would come and and do much, much more than what the Passover lamb did was just cover sin for about a year, and they had to do it again, much more than the sacrificial goat of the Day of Atonement would do because every year they had to do it again. They were looking for that, that lamb of Isaiah 53 who would once and for all not only cover sin, but what? Take it away. So John speaking almost better than he probably knew, is saying when he sees Jesus, and I, I just wished I could have been there. John one twenty nine is one of my all-time uh, scenes. You know, I, I grew up with the television, as most of you did, and I see everything like a, like a scene. And I have John walking across the, the court of the temple, and he sees Jesus, and he goes, there he is. For thousands of years, we Jews have been waiting for God to send him, and there he is. There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you see, there's, a, there's an addition here. The angel told Matthew he will save his people from their sins, and here we find out that it's even more than that, that as the Passover lamb availed for Israel, as the scapegoat availed for Israel, What we find is that it was always God's plan that there would be a lamb whose sacrificial death would avail for the whole world. It's a new covenant declaration. We should have known, I suppose, in Genesis chapter 12 when God made the promise to Abraham, he said, someday, some way, somehow, there's gonna come a someone and in him all the families of the earth will be what? Anybody know Genesis 12, three? Will be blessed. And John the Baptist is the one who says, there he is. We've been waiting for him, and now he has come. But that brings up a a, a theological problem. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So I guess all the sin in the world is taken away. Is that that what it says? Man, what happened? I don't know about you, but I saw you sin today, so I know it's not all gone. (laughs) What does it mean that he takes away the sin of the world? What does that mean? Well, not to get too technical, but to get real technical, what we find is that this word world is used 80 times in the New Testament, or actually in the book of John, and it's used eight different ways. But in this situation, it speaks about what God told Abraham in Genesis 12, that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So what John the Baptist is saying is that all peoples, without distinction, regardless of age or race or language or tribe or clan, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ will avail for all who repent, all who believe, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their geography, regardless of their health, regardless of their virtue, wherever they live. It's what Paul says in Romans 1, 16 and 17, that the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew and also to everybody else. Right? 
It's what Jesus meant in Matthew 28, 19, and 20 when he said to his disciples something that was earth-shattering in terms of their worldview. He says, go into all the world, right, and disciple the nations. You see, always before in the Old Testament, God told Israel, stay away from the peoples. Now he says, I have risen and all power has been given to me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go into all the world. And so what John the Baptist is saying the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's all people without distinction, but not all people without exception. Does that make sense? Because if, if suddenly every sin of every person who'd ever lived had already been completely taken care of, if the demands of God's law had been completed, had been met and satisfied, then there would be no grounds upon which God could judge, and we know that he will at the end. So the way we understand this is that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of everyone in the world who will ever turn from their sin in repentance and turn to Jesus as Lord and Savior in saving faith. Jesus will say this later in John 6, verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And here's the great news, you ready? Whoever comes to me, I will never what? I'll never cast out. I get to tell you, friends, that, that's the gospel. If you want to come on his terms, he'll take you. You don't have to clean yourself up. In fact, you can't clean yourself enough. It doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, who you've done it to, what you've suffered, how you've been mistreated or how you've mistreated others. If you come to Jesus, he will take you. Why? because he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you and I can say that to everyone. We are free to spread the seed as the sower did to every kind of soil and say, here is the good news. If you will turn from your sin and in faith entrust your life to Jesus, he will absolutely take you. I gotta tell you, that's great news. But his declaration is not only that he's the Lamb of God, but he says once again for the second time, we saw it back in verse 15, that he's the eternal son. We've already talked about this, but he says, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Despite the fact, as I said last week, that John was older and came on the scene first, he continues to say that this one, this Jesus, my master, he existed before me because he always was. Go back to John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning, he was there. Why? Because he's God. He's eternal. So if you take Jesus and you have arrows going both forward and backward, they go on forever. He's eternal. But then certainly someone is saying to him, how can you say this, John? I mean, there have been a lot of guys who came and we thought maybe they were Messiah. How do you know? How can you say this? And so in verse 31 and again in verse 35 or 33, we find out that it's not because he has a personal relationship with him. He didn't grow up knowing that he was Messiah. Look what he says in verse 31. I myself did not know him. Now that seems a little risky, right? If, if somebody comes to John and says, are you sure he's the Lamb of God? How, how do you know this? Well, I didn't know him. What? And then he says it again, just in case we missed it, down in verse 33, I myself did not know him. 
He says, I'm not saying these things because I have a vested interest in him. I didn't even know he was Messiah. I didn't come here to champion a friend or a business partner. Uh, It's not my favorite traveling teacher. I'm not his advanced man. I'm not trying to start some movement. But rather, God Almighty gave me the message I was supposed to proclaim. So I don't work for some teacher who's here to, to build a following. I have been directly commissioned by God himself. Look what it says in verse 31. I myself did not know him, but for the purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, underline this, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So what he's saying is that God had called him. God had granted him a message. And he tells us there are two reasons that he came baptizing with water. The first one, for this purpose I came baptizing with water. Why? To reveal the need for Messiah's cleansing. And you remember that we talked a little bit about the baptism that John came with. He was, he was way out in Bethany, east of the Jordan. So let's say that this middle island is, is Jordan, or is the Jordan River. And you guys over here are in Israel, and you guys aren't. Okay? And the stage is the Sea of Galilee. So the Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, runs all the way to the patio, which is the Dead Sea. And Jerusalem is over there, where Corona Mayhew is. Raise your hand, Corona. Thank you. And Bethany, beyond the Jordan, is right about here where Andrea Rodriguez is. Raise your hand. There we go. Okay. So that's a long ways. Okay. He is way out. He's not anywhere that people would normally go. And yet thousands of people are going out there to hear him. And, and why? He says, well, here's, here's why I came. I myself did not know him, verse 31, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Let me explain that. What John's baptism symbolizes externally, that is, the turning away from sin. Jesus affects eternally the taking away of sin. So here's how it works. John starts preaching and he says, Messiah's coming. I'm just a voice saying, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Messiah's coming, you guys. He's coming and you need to, you need to, you need to clean up the walkway to your life by getting rid of the sin, getting rid of the junk Because if Messiah comes, you want to be ready. You want to be clean. You want to be believing. You want to be seen as obedient. You want to be seen as trustworthy, as willing, as his. And so he said, here's what you need to do. You need to repent of your sins. You need to turn away from all those things that are all the junk in your life. And to do that, you commit yourself to it, and there's a demonstration, and that's called, let me baptize you. 
In front of everybody, you're making a profession of faith that I want to turn from my sin. And John would baptize them. So that external cleansing was seen as a, as a symbolic commitment to turn away from sin. And yet, just like the law, just like the sacrifices, every time they did it, they knew what? What do they know? That they had to be done again. That every time they committed, they were committed to turning away from their sin, they realized the next day, man, this is something I got to commit to. I got to keep doing. When will come the time when not only will my sin be covered, but it will be taken away? That is, it'll be eternally forgiven. And so John is saying, my baptism actually reinvigorated in Israel's mind the need for a Messiah. They had become very complacent. They had gotten to the place where they thought, as long as I keep the law, I don't go more than a certain number of steps on the Sabbath, and I tithe my herbs, and I bring all the sacrifices, and I say the prayers, and I do all the things I'm supposed to, I'm okay with God. And John says, here's why I came baptizing with water. Because Israel needed to be reminded that their sin could only be forgiven not through the blood of bulls and goats, as the writer of Hebrews says, which can never take away sin, but through faith in the promise of God concerning Messiah. And John says, he's coming. John says, when you come and are baptized by me, you're saying, I'm turning away from my sinful ways in anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. He says, I, I came baptizing in order that the need for Messiah might be revealed in Israel. But someone might say, but John, how did you know Jesus was the Messiah if you didn't know him? Good question. And so we see what happens. In verse 32, he says, and John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So here's the timeline, in case you're kind of lost. Anybody lost? At some point, God called John, the Baptist, to be a prophet, to speak his words, just like he did Elijah, just like he did Elisha, just like he did all of the prophets. So he, he stands the last in line of this great Old Testament group of men that God prevailed upon to be his spokesman to Israel. And so at some point, he, he calls him and he instructs John the Baptist about his message, that you are going to go and say, he's coming, prepare the way for him, and you're going to dramatize your commitment by being baptized, this symbolic sense of cleansing. John was going to preach repentance, and those who accepted his message were to demonstrate that through baptism. And then God instructed John the Baptist that he will be the one to announce the presence of Messiah. Wow, what a privilege. He instructs John the Baptist that the Messiah will be the one that's going to bring, out, bring about the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise that one day God will pour out his spirit on all flesh from Joel 2 that they looked forward to a day when the very presence of God would not be found in a building, the temple or the tabernacle. 
that one day God the Spirit would be poured out on all flesh, all believers, and God would make his abode, make his dwelling in the lives of his people. I don't have time to tell you this, but I will anyway. Remember, God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He lived with them. And then sin came, and there was separation, and Adam and Eve could no longer live with God. And if you want to, you can, you can think of the whole Old Testament and New Testament as the promise that God would one, t- one day dwell with his people again. So we get to uh, Genesis 40, and God says, okay, I'm about to take you from Mount Sinai and lead you into the wilderness and then enter the land of Canaan, and I'm going to go with you, so I'm going to have you build this traveling tent called the tabernacle, and it will be kind of one step closer to me dwelling in your midst because whenever you guys camp, you put the tent in the middle, and there will be a glory cloud that hovers over it, which is God once again dwelling in the midst of his people, kind of, sort of, right? So when they get to Israel, we get into Solomon's day, and he says, I want to build a permanent tabernacle called the temple. So in 1 Kings 8, they build this glorious temple, and Solomon prays, and God's presence, the, uh, the, the experience of the presence of the omnipresent, invisible God, I don't know how else you say it, is this cloud that once again God is saying, I am in a way dwelling in the midst of my people. And then we get to the New Testament and we find out, as we saw in John 1.14, that the word that is Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and the word dwelt there is the word tabernacle. That now no longer is God making his presence with his people known through a building, but now it's a body. But the promise was always that God would actually dwell in his people. And so in Acts 1, when Jesus ascended, people started thinking, oh no, will God dwell amongst us? How is this going to happen? And then in Acts 2, we find out that he, what? He poured out his spirit, and it remained on the apostles. And Paul and Peter and all the apostles started saying that, that when you accept Jesus Christ into your life, God the Spirit comes and what? Takes up residence in you, in us, the pouring out of the Spirit. And so this was this, this great hope of the people of God was that one day God would dwell in them. And God tells John the Baptist, you're the one that's gonna get to say that. You're the one who is going to say that there's gonna come one to you and you see the Spirit come on him and remain on him. He's the one then who is going to grant the Spirit to all who will believe. So Jesus comes to be baptized and John the Baptist baptizes him and this is how, this is how Matthew detailed that he said, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. 
And so if we go back to the question that someone might ask John the Baptist, how did you know he was Messiah if, if you didn't even know him? He says, well, the same one who commissioned me as a prophet, the same one who told me to come baptizing with water, to call the people of Israel back to repentance, to prepare the way of the Lord into their lives, he gave me the clue. He said, when you see the Spirit of God coming and remaining on him, this is the one. Now, the whole idea of remaining is a new thing. In the Old Testament, the Spirit came, came on Saul. In fact, in 1 Samuel eleven six, 6, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. But we find out just five chapters later that because Saul was so disobedient, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. We know that the Spirit of God came on David and after his, after his sin with Bathsheba, he was afraid that God would take his spirit from him. That's why in Psalm 51, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. We used to sing that song. But as New Covenant believers, we can't sing that because we've been granted the spirit. And he is the seal He's the guarantor of our eternal forgiveness, that we have the Spirit of God. So John comes and he says, the first reason I came was to reveal the need for Messiah. The second reason I came baptizing is because it was through my activity of baptism that Jesus would come and the Spirit of God would remain on him. And I... I would understand that it's he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm just going to push the pause button here a minute because this whole idea, you guys okay? I know it's been machine gun, hasn't it? It's just been, I feel that too. Let me, let me just take a deep breath. You probably have heard about baptism of the Spirit. And there's a lot of confusion about what that means. In some circles, it's, it's called what's called the second blessing, that you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, and then later, you are baptized with the Spirit, and that's kind of a, a second level of blessing that enables you to do great and powerful things. The fact is, is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is also known in the scriptures as the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So he's not only the, the one who does the baptizing, he is, he's the water, if you want to call it that. Spirit baptism is a one-time event that happens when we trust our lives to Jesus, okay? when we are saved. The Spirit of God comes in and grants us new life. Okay? It's called regeneration. And the reason baptism is used here is because throughout the ancient world, baptism was always an initiating event, just like it is today. Uh, when we pull that screen up and there are brothers and sisters in Christ who stand there and tell us how God saved them and then they go under the waters of baptism, what they're saying is I am demonstrating that I have been initiated into Christ and I am aligning myself as well with this community. Water baptism is an external display of what the Spirit of God has already done, and that is 
join us into the family of God. We know that this is true from 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So spirit baptism is a one-time event accomplished by God the Spirit, whereby he brings us into the family of God. It is symbolized by water baptism, whereby we go under the water as one who has died to self, raised to new life, and ready to align ourselves with Christ and with his people. Water baptism is a dramatic display of what the Spirit of God has already done. Okay? It's a one-time event that happens at the time of salvation by which God the Spirit brings the repentant sinner into the family of God. So just as John's baptism demonstrated that the person being baptized wanted to be numbered with that group of people who, by turning from their sin, were preparing to welcome Messiah, and just as water baptism today signifies a person's desire to be seen as numbered with Christ and with the local church, so also baptism by the Spirit is a spiritual act accomplished by God the Spirit whereby the believer is now numbered with those throughout all time and in every place who are alive in Christ, children of God by faith. And that brings us to the last part of this text. We saw his declaration. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the pre-existent one who is younger than me physically but eternal spiritually. And now we see his confession. Verse 34, and John the author has set this up perfectly. I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So remember who John the Baptist was. He was a hero to the Israelite people, uh, largely because he'd been martyred by Herod. He was universally loved, universally respected. And so John the author has put him on the witness stand, and the first part of his testimony was that he downplayed himself. I'm just a voice, but I'm a voice who's been commissioned by Almighty God to bring a message of repentance and to demonstrate the reality of the coming of Messiah when I see the Spirit of God remaining on him. He testified about himself and he testified about Jesus. Now what do we know about John the Baptist then from this? Well, what he heard from God, he obeyed. Somewhere along the line, God called him and said, go do this and this, even though you're gonna be, it's gonna be weird for you. You're gonna be kind of an outcast. You're gonna live in the desert and you're gonna have a terrible diet and you're gonna wear these hairy clothes that remind people of Elijah. And you're gonna stand up to the religious leaders of the day when you say to them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? But what he heard from God, he obeyed. And what John the Baptist would told, was told he would see, he saw. Messiah being baptized in the Spirit of God descending and what? Remaining on him. And the third thing, what John the Baptist heard and saw, he now declares, Jesus is God the Son. You know, it's clear that the experience of seeing the Spirit of God descend as a dove on Jesus was a transformative event for John the Baptist. When he saw that, 
he could be sure, he was courageous, that Jesus was the Messiah. And remember, it cost him his life. He went around saying, there he is, there's Jesus Christ, he's the Messiah. That set off a political firestorm. As Herod began to think, wait a minute, there's somebody who possibly could be king of the Jews, and I'm king of the Jews. And so he grabs John, who he saw as, as raising up kind of a, a revolutionary opposition, and puts him in prison. Why? Because he was bold, because he was courageous, because he believed what God had told him. And he says, I've seen it, I've borne witness that this is the Son of God. We'll say more about that phrase in the weeks to come. But in case you're wondering, why son? Is that less than God? All you have to do is go back through John 1, 1 through 18, and you see that in John, the author's mind, the label son of God was a unique title. It is the one who eternally demonstrates the same glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John the author has put the first witness forward on his way to proving that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the whole point is that we may believe. Now, I just wanna say one thing. We're studying this, most of us, I think, as believers. So why would we do that? If we already believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and we already have eternal life in his name, why would we study this? Simply because, as I mentioned at the beginning, the more we come to understand the complexity of God's redemptive plan, the more we come to understand the, the majesty of God the Son incarnate, uh, the deeper we go into the mind and heart and compassion and love and justice of God, the more beautiful he comes, becomes to us. And the easier it is for us to entrust him with everything in our lives to be what he calls us to be, just like John the Baptist was. But it's also true if you don't believe. I'm more and more convinced that in the church in America, and I imagine it's probably true here too, that we have people who are part of the church without being part of Christ. There's a lot of good things about Grace Baptist. I mean, who wouldn't want to be here, right? Who wouldn't want to have your kids here? We have friendships that grow out of our fellowship groups. Uh, we learn things that are good in our lives, help us to be better moms and dads and employers and employees and neighbors. There's a lot of good stuff here, but I just want to tell you the hardest thing in the world is to try and live the Christian life without Jesus. So as we make our way through the book of John, may the Lord continue to raise in us a delight for Jesus. You see, when you come to God, you don't just get stuff. The most important thing you get is Jesus himself. May the Lord continue to increase our love for him. Father, sometimes theology causes our minds to, to buzz around, and we, we come up with more questions than answers, but we thank you for that. Lord, we don't want to be a church that never thinks deeply and therefore never adores deeply this magnificent God-man we know as Jesus, God the Son incarnate. Father, we want to revel in the majesty of your plan of redemption, that somehow you would give your Son in our place and for our benefit.
that we might truly know what forgiveness is eternally. So Father, where there are doubts in our minds, would you please eclipse them with the knowledge that we find in John 1? And where there are deficiencies of obedience, may you fix those as well by granting us a deeper love for what is right than what is wrong. And Lord, we thank you that even when we are at our worst, on our very worst day, if we are in Christ, we are accepted not because of who we are, but because of who he is. We thank you for this in Jesus' name.